Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Here's how this podcast works. Each week we begin with about 7 to 10 minutes on the weekly parsha, hence the name 7-Minute Torah. You'll either hear me, or you'll hear me in conversation with a Jewish thought leader. After that, if you want to stick around, we often continue with a bonus interview where we talk about all things Jewish. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to 7-Minute Torah. I want to start by acknowledging that this is a hard week for the Jewish people. The events that went on in Colleyville, Texas, the standoff and the hostage-taking scenario at Congregation Beth Israel were no less than gut-wrenching and terrifying. I think Jews all over the world right now are feeling somewhat traumatized and certainly concerned. And I couldn't just jump into the Torah portion without acknowledging the pain and the fear of this moment. One of the themes of Jewish life and of Jewish history, in my opinion, is that we tend to respond to suffering with creativity. When the first temple was destroyed, we created the Torah. When the second temple was destroyed by the Romans, the rabbis created a whole new kind of Judaism, which became known as Rabbinic Judaism and the Talmud, Judaism as we know it today. So each time there's some major event of suffering or trauma, we respond with study and with learning and with creativity, which helps us to thrive. All this is to say that I want to dedicate this learning to the menschlichkeit and the heroism of my friend, Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, who showed us all this past Saturday what human beings are capable of. I'll come back to that at the very end and also share with you my own connection to the congregation in Colleyville. But for now, I want to get into our interview. This week, we're talking about Yitro. Yitro is the heart of the book of Exodus. After the Israelites leave Egypt and march through the Red Sea as they did last Saturday, they make their way to Mount Sinai where they encounter God in an experience of revelation that is unmatched in Torah and in the Jewish story. God speaks to the people, speaks Ten Commandments. Actually, in the full version, God speaks far more than Ten Commandments. Next week's portion will be more of what God says to the people. But these Ten Commandments really sit at the heart of Jewish identity and Jewish law, and, as we'll see today, of the Jewish encounter with God. My guest for this interview is Rabbi Oren Hayon. He's the senior rabbi of Congregation Emmanuel in Houston, Texas, so another Texas rabbi, and I'll introduce him once he's on the line. As always, we'll talk Torah for the first little while, and then we'll let our conversation meander after the break. In this case, it's a little more closely related because he is the recent editor of a book about the Ten Commandments. All right, Rabbi Oren Hayon, welcome to 7 Minute Torah. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to talk with you again. It's been a while. It has been a while. It's great to be together and great to be uh, carving out some time together to talk about Torah and talk about the world. I I couldn't agree more. Uh, So you are the senior rabbi of Congregation Emmanuel in Houston, Texas, and you're also a a writer and a translator of liturgy and poetry. And we'll talk as we get further about the latest book that you've been involved in, which is a, a compilation of essays about the Ten Commandments. But 
Let me actually just stop and take a step back and first ask you how you're doing, because the Jewish world experienced a trauma this past weekend, and you, at least geographically, are relatively close to it. So I wonder how you and your community are holding up in the wake of this hostage standoff that happened at, at Congregation Beth Israel in, in Colleyville, Texas. Thank you. Um, you know, it's been a hard few days. I mean, I think I, I think um, to say anything else uh, would be inauthentic. It's been a really hard few days. It's felt lonely uh, and isolating and uh, a little frightening. And, um, you know, thank God, obviously, we're all grateful that, that the ending of the story was a happy one. Uh, but it was a harrowing couple of days, um, both, you know, as a Jewish professional, but also, uh, you know, you and I both share a friendship with uh, Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, who's the spiritual leader of that community. And seeing uh, the way his spiritual guidance and leadership, um, his kindness and his strength and bravery um, really became the, the center of an experience of um, heroism and righteousness uh, was really inspiring. So I'm trying to trying to hold on to that uh, inspiring experience as well as trying to be really thoughtful about how to process the, the fear and the trauma that my community and my uh, my clergy colleagues have been making our way through. I was thinking, I, I knew he was a mensch before, and now we know he's a mensch and a hero and incredibly brave. And I just, it's hard to say what I would have done in the same situation. And I just, I don't even know what words to say about this incredible person that we went to school with and who um who not only acted heroically in that moment but then also yesterday got up in front of his congregation and led them in healing and led them in coming together as a community have have you found that your con that your community is looking to come together and to find moments of healing in the wake of this i think so i think um you know i think this coming shabbos will be uh you know we'll, we'll wait and see who feels ready to come back and who doesn't but I think I've heard some wonderful messages from people reaching out uh, both to offer support and to um, ask for comfort and guidance. Um, it has been, um, you know, it has really shown the, the depth and the strength of the connections that we have with each other in our in our congregational community and beyond across the city, across the state. Um, knowing that we are in this together is uh, sobering and strengthening at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a similar experience where um, we came together as a congregation on Zoom on Sunday night, really in some ways just to be together. There were some songs and there were some poems and some readings, and, and, and then we just gave everyone an opportunity to say how they were feeling and what they were experiencing. And in some ways, I think that is what we need in moments like this is, is to be together, to be supportive of those who've gone through something extraordinarily traumatic, and then to acknowledge that in some ways we've all gone through a trauma and we need each other more than ever before. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that Charlie said beautifully and eloquently um, in one of his interviews was about what, what, what the synagogue means to a Jewish community is that that's, this becomes the hub where we have to come together and encounter each other. Um, and when something traumatic happens to that sacred place, um, it's even that much more important that we come back to that sacred hub to reconnect with each other, to encounter each other. Um, it's not, you know, it's something that we can do imperfectly on Zoom or over the phone, but we, I really firmly believe in synagogues and really believe that we need each other, that we need that experience of, of human encounter. And this is where it happens in a Jewish context. 
Yeah, and that, that language of encounter actually is a beautiful segue into our Parsha, because the Parsha this week is Yitro, and it is about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments we often think of as being God speaking words from on top of a mountain. But as you pointed out to me in our conversation beforehand, and actually as appears in the title of the book that you edited, the Ten Commandments are a moment of of encounter. So let's talk about that for a, for a minute. What is it about this moment in Torah that you think is is about encounter, is about the ways that we need to be together? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, uh, you know, that is probably the the most important question that, that formed this book when it was coming together is what what makes this set of Ten Commandments so important? Why is this moment uh, literarily and ethically um, and historically so important to who we are as a people? Um, you know, what, and one of the hypotheses that I sort of test out and ultimately reject is that um, it's not, you'll forgive me for the impiety, but it's it's not that these Ten Commandments are the best Ten Commandments in the Torah. You know, they are, they're, they're, some of them are kind of mundane. Um, some of them are not especially inspiring. There is, uh, there's nothing in there about caring for the poor. Uh, there's nothing in there about giving charity. There's nothing in there about uh, welcoming the stranger. There's nothing in there, you know, also all the sort of touchstone ethical texts that we think of at, uh, living in the beating heart of Jewish life, a lot of them aren't in there. Um, so to my mind, what must make the Sinai moment so significant is not just what's in the package, uh, but how the package is delivered. And we might, you know, we might expect that something of this uh, value and sanctity and importance um, might be given, you know, maybe Moses would be ferried up to heaven in a golden chariot and God would present them to Moses in a, a secret moment of a transcendence. And, you know, then Moses would come back and, and proclaim them to the people. But that's not what happens. That, that certainly there is a moment of private seclusion between God and Moses up on top of the mountain. Um, but the text takes great pains to emphasize how important it is that everybody is there, uh, that everybody hears it, that everyone knows that this moment of revelation is taking place. And so in addition to that, the vertical channel through which the, the Torah is transmitted from God to Moses, um, there's also this uh, simultaneous, um, equally, if not more important, horizontal dimension in which Torah is transmitted uh, from one peer to another, from one um, everyday uh, Jew on the street to another. And to me, that's what makes not just the content, but the experience of the Ten Commandments uh, so magical and so transformative. Yeah, it reminds me of the uh, the philosophy of Martin Buber, who writes about experiencing God in relationship. He essentially says, you know, to telescope an incredibly vast um, set of philosophy into a sentence or two, he essentially says that we have several kinds of relationships. The relationship where we experience the other as an it and the relationship where we experience the other as a thou or as a you. And that when we enter into an I-thou or I-you relationship, that we also encounter God, who is the eternal thou. He's using the word thou in German, which is du. And so to us, thou sounds very sort of high and mighty, kind of highfalutin. But in fact, the German du is the, is the familiar form of the word you. So what he's really saying is that in a relationship where we encounter another person as a as a human being, as what they are, that God is there and that God is experienced most of all in that in that space between us. And so maybe there's something to this idea that the Ten Commandments are not only an experience of God revealing content 
teaching us the laws of life, but also the experience of God being present with us as we are present together. Yeah, I yeah, I, I really resonate with that. That it's um, you know, it, it is a I, in the book, I talk about it as, as what I call collaborative revelation, that we get to know Torah because we're working on it with each other. There is this um, very famous and, and uh, well-worn uh, image in, uh, in Jewish interpretive tradition that the, the Torah is like a, a precious stone, like a gem that has 70 facets. Uh, and that, you know, if you've ever seen a precious gem or a diamond, when you turn it, the light refracts through the different planes and angles in different ways. So you can see different colors and shapes um, coming through the coming through the prism. But what I what I think is really happening is that it's not that the, the Torah itself is multifaceted, but that we are able to access it in different ways um, by its refraction through each other. When I care about you and get to know you, um, I get to see Torah in a new way because it's it's coming through you. It's being filtered. Its light is being filtered through you, and there are um, dimensions of it that I never would have seen or appreciated were it not for our relationship. Yeah, so it points out in some ways the difference between Judaism and some other traditions, which is that Judaism doesn't begin with a revelation to any single person. Uh, and one of the great writers of medieval Judaism, um, Yehuda Halevi, talks about this in his philosophy book, which is called the Kuzari. He's trying to prove which, which religion is the best. I don't have at stake in which one is best. But he points out that one difference, one special thing about Judaism is the idea that it began with a revelation to everyone, that every Jew was standing at Sinai in that moment. Uh, rather than something being passed down by one person to a community of people. And that's actually still a really important idea in our Judaism. We talk about having all stood at Sinai together. We recreate this moment at Sinai every time we come together in the synagogue, every time we pray together, every time we um, pray for one another, every time we celebrate a life cycle event. When we take the Torah out of the Ark and stand in front of the congregation, we stand shoulder to shoulder and we feel ourselves present at Sinai. Yeah, totally. I spoke earlier about the, the angle of intersection between the horizontal and the vertical, you know, the, the y-axis and the x-axis. But there's also the z-axis that, that, there, that the Torah sort of makes this um, outrageous, ridiculous, beautiful and inspiring claim that it's not just everyone who was there at the time that was there, but it's all of us that that, that sort of horizontal dimension expands, extends through time as well. So it's not just all of the Israelites who came out of slavery that were there at Sinai, but you were there and I was there and my kids were there and my grandparents were there. We we're all there at the same time. That, you know, that is preposterous. And it's one of the most beautiful things about our tradition. I think that's a really nice sentiment on which to take a break. So that's the end of part one of our interview. And when we come back after a very short break, we'll depart the Parsha and talk more about Judaism and about your writing and about ideas. Although we're not really departing the Parsha because we're still going to be talking about the Ten Commandments. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. All right, welcome back with Rabbi Oren Hayon. I'd like to pick up on something that you talked about a moment ago. You, you mentioned this image, which you mentioned in your book as well, of... Judaism's long-standing affirmation of Shiv'im Panim La Torah, the Torah may be compared to a priceless 
70-faceted jewel. And one of the things that made me think of is not only the idea that we see Torah through each other's eyes, but also the idea that there are many faces, many ways of approaching Torah. And I know that in your book, which now that we're after the break, I'll, I'll, I'll formally introduce your book. It's called, it's called Inscribed, Encounters with the Ten Commandments. And it is a series of essays by people coming from different backgrounds, some academics, some rabbis, some non-clergy, who are writing about the Ten Commandments or about one of the commandments from a different perspective. So can you talk a little bit about what what went into deciding what views would be in, in the book? And why did the idea of pluralism, the idea that there were multiple views and multiple ways to see each commandment, why was that so important in putting together this work? Yeah, I, I think, you know, part of this is, um, you know, a, a gentle rebuttal to the image of the 70 faceted jewel that I, I, I worry if we take that image too seriously or too literally, we will come away with the conclusion um, that Judaism is a is a religion of relativism, you know, that you have your Torah. I have my Torah, this guy over here has his Torah, and they're all perfectly valid. They're all, you know, their own independently functioning Torahs. Um, but that's obviously not exactly the case, that that all of our interpretations rely on each other, and they're also all um, uh, interconnected. So when I uh, set out to collect the uh, the writers for the book, I my standard was basically, uh, I want to find some of the smartest people I know. <laughs> I want to find some of the most fascinating people I'd love to have dinner with and invite them to just write about um, one of the commandments that I think intersects with their work, whether it's work in uh, police chaplaincy or philosophy or um, activism, labor rights. Uh, there's an extraordinary uh, collection of writers here, and they're all people that you would love to have have dinner with and just hear them talk about the world. Um, and in some unexpected ways, when I got their essays back and bound the book together, um, just the proximity of placing this essay next to this one next to this one um, created the net result of a, of a beautifully sort of interacting field of meanings. Um, you know, like a, it sort of, you thought you had a group of soloists, but you actually had an orchestra. Hmm. Uh, and, and all of the writings interact in really, really beautiful, thoughtful ways. And so once the book was finished, that was, you know, that led me to, uh, to pick the, uh, the quote from the Michalta that, that opens the book, which is this, this idea in the Midrash that, that there is um, symbolic structural significance to the fact that the, that the Ten Commandments were given on a set of two tablets, one with five commandments facing a different tablet of five commandments. Um, and you sort of have to imagine those two tablets sort of being hinged or connected together at the seam so that commandment number one is facing commandment number six, number two is facing number seven and so on. So um, it's not just the interpreters of Torah that are in dialogue with each other, but the Torah itself is in an ongoing dialogue. Tell me more about what that means, that the Torah is in dialogue with itself. You know, I think it's like, if you've ever seen like a one of those sort of um, computer generated fractals, you know, where you sort of, you zoom in and at every level of magnification, the, the pattern remains the same, even though it's sort of infinitely complex. Um, the farther in you dive, uh, the farther in, you, the more aware you become of the of the deep structure that's that's connecting the whole image. That's sort of what it, what it feels like to me that, that um, the Torah is itself, I mean, again, it sounds preposterous and it sounds, um, um, 
I don't know, irrational or meta-rational that, that there is, um, the Torah has an understanding of itself um, as a book that is seeking wisdom um, and it wants to interrogate itself. And so the first commandment about uh, the, the eternal presence of God is interrogating what the deeper significance of a prohibition on murder might mean. Hmm. Um, and when you stack those two commandments up next to each other, both of them uh, are granted new meaning and new significance because of their proximity with each other. Right. Well, and when we read the Torah through liberal eyes, understanding it as not a single document, but rather a series of documents laid over each other, then I think we can, we really can see how literally the Torah is in conversation with itself. And I mean, this isn't Torah exactly, but for example, the book of Chronicles, which is the last book of the, of the Tanakh, of the Bible, is in many ways a commentary on the book of Kings. It takes the ideas, it tells the same story, but it tells it in a different way several hundred years later. Um, and, and by the same token, I think even within the Torah, we often see there are multiple versions of a story multiple conversations going on at the same time where you can often see authors or writers or thinkers trying to work out basic questions about life. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to think about God as creator of the universe? We have two stories in the Torah that answer that question in different ways. What does it mean um, that human beings uh, have a role to play on earth? And so I think often there is this sense of dialogue going on, even within the texts of, of the Torah. Yeah, just staying within the Ten Commandments, you've got a, a, a version of the story in the book of Exodus and a, and a later encapsulation in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, so you've got this, this beautiful sort of um, set of concentric narrative circles where in Deuteronomy, you've got um, a book telling a story about Moses telling a story. <laughs> about the Ten Commandments telling a story about the Ten Commandments. Um, and it, like I said, it becomes fractal and intricate and beautiful. And all of a sudden you've got new wisdom that you can find about Moses, not just as a character, but as a narrator, um, which I think is something that all of us are as well. We're both uh, the, the main characters in our own stories. And I think hopefully also the, the authors uh, of those stories at the same time. So then that idea of dialogue, I know is one of the threads that holds together the essays in, in the book. What's the role that, that that concept is playing in what you've edited here? I, I want to urge uh, you and your, your listeners to spend some time with the, the essay about um, how Torah and how the commandments work as a dialogue. Um, we are, you know, I think Hollywood may have done us no favors in all these images of, you know, the, the thundering voice of God up on top of Mount Sinai and Moses just sort of sitting there taking it all in. Um, but it's not just that Moses or any of us are listeners. I think, and this goes to one of my um, personal and really deeply felt ideas about God, um, which is that um, God wants to talk, but, but God also wants to listen. Um, and I think what we have to say about Torah is um, infinitely, immediately, um, deeply and intimately important to God. Um, and so, again, it's easy to think about horizontal dialogue, but I also um, want to urge um, my students to think about how Torah works as a vertical dialogue as well. I think that um, uh, one thing we understand about God in Jewish life and Jewish tradition is that God loves to teach. Um, and I, speaking personally, every great teacher I've ever had in my life has been someone who made it clear to me that uh, they were interested in what I had to say about the material as well. 
Right. And the Hebrew word for a teacher, for a scholar is Talmid Chacham, which actually means a wise student or a wise learner. In order to be a teacher, you also have to be a learner. Um, I was really moved along those lines by a quote in. This is in the essay by Rabbi Joshua Fagelson, who quotes a, a philosopher that I that I happen to really resonate with, um, Hans Georg Gadamer who is a, um, a philosopher of, of dialectic. He, he talks about hermeneutics and about the ways that we can find meaning in interfacing with, with texts. And the quote, this is on page nine of the book, it says, in a successful conversation, both parties are bound to one another in a new community. We are transformed into a communion in which we do not remain what we were. So that in a conversation, whether it be a conversation between two people like we're having right now, or a conversation with God, such as it is, or even a conversation with a text, that we are changed in that conversation. And that's actually a two-way changing. Um, and I know Gadamer teaches, and um, Rabbi or Dr. Fagelson doesn't exactly quote this here, but I know that Gadamer teaches that the meaning of text is found not only in the author's original intention, but also in what the reader ex experiences through reading the text. So that in some ways, Torah continues to gain new meaning in every generation, in, in the dialogue that we continue to have with Torah. And so I, I think that your book then becomes another contribution to the ongoing meaning of Torah. What Torah means is different in this generation because we have different needs and different preconceptions that we bring and we're, we're learning and teaching different things in every encounter that we have with the text. That's lovely. And I, you know, I, I hope you're right. I would like to think you're right about you know, the book offering that kind of contribution. That would be the, the best possible, um, uh, best possible legacy for this, this little book. But, um, you know, I also, I was also very moved by that teaching in that chapter and I am captivated by the idea about, um, dialogue as an expression of mutual obligation that each, each partner in the dialogue owes something to the other, um, because of the other's role in our transformation. And, um, it is, it's charming to think about the fact that we are, the fact that we are in dialogue with Torah, um, certainly means that the Torah owes something to us, but that we are also somehow beholden to the Torah, that we owe something to it in exchange. Um, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, we treat um, the Torah like a, um, like a cherished conversation partner, uh, you know, like a beloved relative or companion um, that we're not afraid to challenge uh, and wrestle with gently. Um, but uh, ultimately, in the end, we... Um, uh, we love and kiss because of what it means to us and, and how we have been changed by being in a relationship with it. Well, and in that sense, the act of studying Torah is in some ways the, act, the same as the act of being in community. You and I are both congregational rabbis and doing our best also to do scholarly things and to write and to study. And so I think this is my own experience, and you can tell me if you experience something similar, that that idea of dialectic, of learning from each other, for me is very much a facet of congregational life. When I sit around the Torah study table with my congregants on a Shabbat morning, I come there not only to teach, but also to be, but also to learn and to be changed from what I can learn 
from others. And, and I'm aware that the connection between us is forged in the conversation and in the dialectic. And I think that happens around the Torah study table. And I think it happens in the hospital room. And, and I think it even happens around the board table. So to me, the, those are all in some ways the same experience that we're having. We're, we're, we are making Torah no matter what facet or what element of Jewish life we're experiencing in the moment. A hundred percent. And to, you know, uh, to come full circle to the way we started the conversation, I think this is something especially beautiful that, uh, that Charlie shared with his congregation earlier this week about the way that real relationship, um, love, uh, intimacy, connection, mutual obligation, all of that requires, um, us to develop a comfort with a certain level of vulnerability, uh, being able to sort of uh, leave ourselves open uh, to, to change and to newness and to discomfort, uh, but only by sort of opening ourselves up in that way do we, do we um, make ourselves um, able to, to change and grow in the beautiful transformative ways that we know spiritual community is capable of. That, um, you know, none of this work uh, can be undertaken fully or uh, successfully in isolation. I just, I, I, I mean that, I, I, I know that in the deepest part of myself, that we need each other, um, we need what each other can bring, and um, none of us can, can become who we're meant to be uh, without the presence of others. Mm -hmm. And that that kind of vulnerability sometimes feels like weakness, but in fact, it it's the opposite. It's strength because it what's help. It, it is what helps us continue to grow into our best selves in relationship with others. Um, and and actually, I won't read it now, but I think at the end of the program, I'll close with the poem that Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker wrote, which is um, a, a prayer that's called "We Are Not Helpless," which is very much about about that. Um, so can I, I, I want to ask you two more questions, if you don't mind. These are the questions sure. I, that I ask pretty much everybody I interview. They're about ritual and about books, two of the most important elements of, of Jewish life. So I'd love to know if there is one Jewish ritual that you find particularly meaningful. And then I would, would love to know, other than your book, which we're all going to read now, is there one book that you recommend? What book do we all need to read? What a great question. Well, um, I, you know, I want to answer your first question uh, less as the rabbi of a congregation and more as a dad. Um, and I will tell you that um, I really cherish Havdalah uh, because Saturday nights uh, before everyone scatters to go in their different direction um, has been a really meaningful experience for my family. when We were able to get together to share Havdalah and uh, we have a, a family ritual where uh, we each uh, choose uh, an open-ended question for the other members of the family to answer. So maybe it's, you know, what was your most embarrassing moment or what's your, uh, what's your greatest goal for your life or uh, who is your most important teacher? And we take turns answering those questions as we're uh, closing out Shabbat and moving into the work week. And that to me is really meaningful and, uh, you know, a highlight of the week as I say goodbye to Shabbat, which is always a time of, you know, busyness and, uh, uh, and, and work as a rabbi and moving into the rest of the week. So for me, um, as a dad and as a husband, I think Abdallah uh, is really important to me. Thank you. I love that. And I love the way you've brought together a traditional ritual, the ritual of Havdalah, with a, a unique family ritual, something that you created to, to process the moment or to, to be together. Thanks for sharing that. Sure, absolutely.
And now I see you I, looking at your bookshelf. I'm looking at my bookshelf. I know this is like such a hard question to me. Um, what did you What did you say? Have you answered that? No one's ever asked me that before. Well, Micah, tell me a book that you think we all need to own. Oh, wow. All right, I'm going to think while you think. Okay. Now I have to look at my shelves. Listeners, in case you're wondering, we've both gotten up to look at our bookshelves to figure out what book we all need to read. All right. All right. You go first. I will share a book that, that I think has been really formative for me um, and one that I would recommend to any learner or teacher. It's not a Jewish book, but um, has been really influential to me as a, as a Jewish teacher. Um, and that is the book called To Know As We Are Known by Parker Palmer, hmm. who writes, um, describes in the book about how um, education is um, a work of spirituality. Um, and for me, uh, who finds some of my deepest uh, religious spiritual experiences in learning and in teaching, I, I find it really, really important. As a, uh, Every time I think about what I want to teach to a different class, every time I think about how I want to approach a text um, or a, uh, a question that won't leave me alone, I come back to that. It's a it's a terrific, terrific book. It's very readable, very accessible, and um, uh, anyone who 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 considers themselves a a student or a teacher should have it on their bookshelf. To know as we are known. To know as we are known by Parker Palmer. That's a great suggestion. And you're right, not a Jewish book exactly, but but a very Jewish book in a sense. How about you? Do you have a book that you'd recommend for everybody? All right. So here's the one that I um that I took off my shelf. This is a book that I keep coming back to over the years, both in my teaching and also in terms of things that I think about. It's called Finding God by Rifat Sansino and Daniel Syme. Syme. And it is essentially a survey course of Jewish views on God. There are 12 different chapters in this book, and each of them is a different way of thinking about or approaching God uh, in, in a Jewish context. And so to come back to this idea of Shivim Panim La Torah, that there are 70 faces, that there are many faces of Torah, and that we all experience God a little bit differently, um, I find it really inspiring that Judaism from the very beginning has had this multiplicity of, of experiences of God built in. So, you know, just to read you the name of a chapter or two, Chapter three is called Philo's Spiritual Monotheism. Chapter four is the Neo-Aristotelianism of Maimonides. And then you jump to the to the more modern times and you get the philosophy of dialogue of Buber and the religious naturalism of Kaplan. So, you know, some who understand God as a supernatural being and some who don't, some who understand God as experienced in relationship and some who understand God as experienced in, in nature. And as someone who thinks deeply about what it is to encounter God. And as someone, you know, if I can reveal my own theology here, who struggles with traditional notions of God as supernatural and as uh, all-knowing and all-powerful, I think this idea that Judaism has always had a multiplicity of views built in is really inspiring for me. So that's Finding God by 
Rifat Sansino and Daniel Syme. And thanks for asking me. Thanks for, for challenging me to answer my own question. <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm going to have to make sure I go back to that book. I think it's somewhere on my shelf. I just need to dig it out again. <laughs> well, Rabbi Oren Hayon, I want to thank you for spending some time with me. This was an absolute pleasure for me. It was a real delight. I'm really grateful for the invitation, for the conversation, and uh, for the learning. I'm, I'm really, really grateful. Thank you. My deep thanks to Rabbi Oren Hayon for joining me for an interesting and thoughtful conversation. And as promised, I want to end this podcast with some words from Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker of Congregation Beth Israel in Colleyville, Texas. You may have gathered from the conversation that Rabbi Citron Walker was a classmate of both mine and of Rabbi Oren Hayon's back in our rabbinical school days in Cincinnati. He was a mensch and an inspiration then, and he is now as well. I also served Congregation Beth Israel as its student rabbi in 2004-2005 before they had hired a full-time rabbi. I had the honor of dedicating what was at the time the new sanctuary, which is of course the sanctuary in which the hostages were held this past Shabbat. So I know what a warm and inclusive and progressive congregation it is, and how much Rabbi Citron Walker and the members of Beth Israel work both to build an inclusive congregation and also to build bridges within the wider community that surrounds them. So I think there are no better words to end than these, which were written by Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker. This is called We Are Not Helpless. He writes, We are not helpless. We bring healing with band-aids and hugs, a cup of coffee and chicken soup. We are not helpless. We bring healing with a text, a call, a card, a response that says you are not alone. We are not helpless. We bring healing with acceptance, patience, and understanding for ourselves and for others. We are not helpless. We bring healing with words of compassion and acts of compassion, reaching out with care and love. We are not helpless. We bring healing to heart and mind, body and soul. We bring healing every day. We are not helpless. May this coming week be one of renewal and healing, of dialogue and encounter, and finding God in the space between us and other people. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoyed this program, please leave a review or a comment, and please pass it on to a friend. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week.